Ephesians, the first chapter, starting with the 11th verse. And when you have it, could you please stand? The word of God reads as follows. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with your with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what it is, what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the working of his great power. God put his power to work in Christ when raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and made them and made him head of over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God's word for God's people and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, for the time that is ours to uh, spend together, I want to talk about uh, a question. What are we here for? What are we here for? It's, uh, it's a big question. It's uh, often posed when uh, people are asking these big philosophical questions about the meaning of life. And then it's also posed when we're asking not so philosophical questions like, why are we having this meeting? What are we here for? And I want to talk a little bit about why the church at Ephesus and the church in general is here. I like uh, Ephesians. It is uh, what some scholars have posed as a quote-unquote Deuteropauline letter, which means they're not quite sure whether or not the Apostle Paul wrote it himself. He might have had somebody else to write it, or he might have told them to write it, or he might have had somebody, somebody who was one of his students or disciples you know, just kind of write it in its place to uh, speak to the church at Ephesus. And some of the reasons the major scholars go back and forth on this is because for a lot of Paul's letters, he names people specifically by name. 
during the greetings and during the closings. He names uh, in Romans, he names Jania, he names different people and thanks them for their hospitality. And uh, the book of Acts tells us that Paul went to Ephesian, uh, Ephesus twice and stayed there for a very long time. And so those super duper deep scholars think, well, how could he have spent so much time there and not send some sort of shout out to somebody while he was there? Me personally, uh, I don't care whether Paul wrote it or whether one of Paul's disciples wrote it or whether somebody wrote it pretending to be Paul. Uh, All scripture is God inspired. Uh, And the Bible to me has always been a form of a report Uh, And its thesis statement being Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So you have what happened before Jesus came in the Old Testament and the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled. You had the prophecies being fulfilled in the gospel. And then after the gospel, you have specific instructions to the church about how they're supposed to act in some of the epistles in the book of Acts. And then in Revelation, that's of things to come. So it's a report. And so for me, I don't get all deep into it, but I do feel it's worth mentioning because I just I feel my pastoral call is to equip the saints. And uh, I spent a lot of time when I was in college watching people get told different things about their own religion that they didn't know. And that was enough to shake them from it. So someone might have come up to somebody and said, you know, Paul really didn't write Ephesians. And that would be enough for them to think that their pastor was lying to them because it never came from the pulpit. So if the pastor didn't tell them that, what else have they not told them? So as long as I have a pulpit, I will continue to equip the saints so that they have a better foundation in the faith and are not easily swayed by all the different doctrines raising to and fro. So to me, it does not matter whether he wrote it specifically or one of his students wrote it or he dictated it to somebody else while they wrote it. Mm-hmm. All scripture is inspired by God's word. Mm-hmm. So we have this church at Ephesus and it seems to be at peace. Seems to be some things going on that are good with the church of Ephesus and they're not at war or, or being that, that badly persecuted by some of their surrounding people for being Christians, even though this was pretty much a church that started following Jesus in an area that was primarily considered pagan. And so they didn't have to worry about a physical fight while they were trying to follow Jesus. That is why I said, and they had to worry about a spiritual battle, not the flesh and blood kind. But a spiritual battle. That's why it says in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians is here to tell us that we have won the battle through Christ. My... Uh, Seminary professors often drill it into me that, you know, Jesus is a person and Christ is a title. And Jesus specifically came to Christ after he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, suffering on that cross, he came back with all power. After suffering on that cross, he came back with all power in his hand. And 
because we have that power in Christ, we're able to beat those rulers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. And it's strange, you know, because the cross itself is, we kind of flipped it around, you know. The cross is now a, is an emblem of peace. It's an emblem of protection. It makes a nice piece on your chain. It nice piece of jewelry, something nice to hang on the wall or put on top of a book. But it wasn't always like that. The cross was meant to shame. It was meant to embarrass. The cross was something that the Romans used to dispose of a common criminal. That's why it was hanging up between two thieves. This wasn't something that was uh, supposed to be about dying with honor. But yet Christ was able to take something that people intended to embarrass and people intended to misuse and abuse and made it a symbol of strength. Sort of taking the things and all, making all things work together for our good. Sign of God, Jesus took something that was bad and made it worthwhile. So much so that the author of Ephesians was able to write it while in chains, in prison, possibly waiting in execution. Still able to tell people that God has put everything under his feet. Not only in this age, but the age to come. And in chains, he talks about setting our hope on Christ. That is a good thing to hope for, amen? Christ will never leave you or forsake you. Christ will never tell your business. Christ will always be there for you through thick and thin. Good times and bad. Jesus is a true friend indeed. So what are we here for? What is the church here for? What are we doing with this thing? First thing we're doing is taking possessions. Let the church say possession. Possession. Talks about uh, in the 11th verse, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. What is an inheritance? It's it's, uh, the act of inheriting property. It is the reception of genetic qualities by transmission from parent to offspring. (laughs) My mother runs very fast. She passed that we inherited that genetic disposition to run very fast, both Jessica and I. And it's already starting to manifest itself in our children. Speed is just one of the inheritance. It's something that's passed down. It's the acquisition of a possession, a condition, or a trait from past generations. It's also something that may be inherited. It's a tradition. We as members of the United Methodist Church have inherited certain things from uh, when John Wesley and everyone else was practicing the the methods that they went about worship. And it was a joke to some of the people he was uh, going around with because they worshiped always the same way. And so they called them Methodists as a joke. But yet now it's uh, something we're united behind. Methodists. It's an inheritance, it's a tradition, a valuable possession that is a common heritage from nature. And the fourth definition for inheritance is possession. 
What are we possessing? We are possessing through Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, we get possession to spiritual blessings. We get possession to the Holy Spirit. We get possession of salvation. You know, I've heard a, a, a lot of different things about salvation, especially recently. You know, talking about salvation or lack thereof or giving it to everybody has ruined many a pastor's career. Not going to say names, but uh, definitely there are some pastors that have tried to espouse some unorthodox opinions on salvation and lost their entire church membership behind it. I'm not really concerned about what everybody else has to say about salvation. I think I would rather be concerned about what the word has to say about salvation. So I go to Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God of Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and established their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness of the law. Man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to say that again. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with a heart with one believes in the righteousness and the mouth is confession made unto salvation for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved then they shall call on him then how shall they call on him without believed and how shall they believe in him who, who have not heard? And how shall they hear him without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings good tidings of good things, but they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, it is believed, who has believed the report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That is what the word says. Not what anybody else says, but we are able as members of Christ's body to possess the salvation. We possess salvation as Christians and it is our duty to share the gospel for all, with all mankind. Then the scripture goes on to say that uh, in uh Verse 13, in him you also, then you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Then 14 says, this is the pledge of our inheritance towards the redemption of God's people. There's that word pledge. I like that word pledge. It's a serious promise or agreement. 
It is a promise to give money. And then the one I really like is, it's something that you leave with another person as a way to show you will keep your promise. You can pledge a promissory note. You can pledge a fraternity or sorority. You can pledge your undying love for someone. It's something you leave as a promise that you're going to keep your word. And I like that it says that the Holy Spirit, you're marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And this is the pledge of our inheritance towards the redemption of God's own people for the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is something that was left behind so that God would show us that he would keep his promise. And the Bible says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. What has he said that he will not do? Or what has he spoken that he will not make good? We have the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit. And that's to tell us that God does not go back on his word. And that's what we can take comfort in. That's what, it, that's what it says to me when we call the Holy Spirit a comforter. Amen. When Christ arose and then said that you'll have a comforter. Amen. I take comfort in the fact that the Holy Spirit lets me know that his word is not void. The Holy Spirit is the pledge to let me know that he's coming back. The Holy Spirit is the pledge to let me know about my salvation. Right. It is a promise. It is something that is left with another person as a way that I'll keep the promise. So we possess. We're here to get our possessions. We're here to take up our inheritance. Second part is prayer. Let the church say prayer. prayer. I noticed in the text, even though Paul commends them, says, I've heard about your faith and your love. He still prays that they improve upon it. And not only does he pray that they improve upon it, he prays continually. Yeah, yeah. Said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and in your love and toward all saints and reason. And I do not cease to give thanks as I remember you in my prayers. Plural, plural. Prayer is continual. You know, I used to be one that would say, you know, you need to just pray once for it and it's done. That's all you need. But it is not about what you need done. Sometimes the prayer is about you until what needs to get done gets done. For the Bible says to be anxious or nothing and, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then it goes on to say in First Thessalonians, see that no one renders evil for evil for anyone. But always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks for this is the word of Christ Jesus for you. And even in Ephesians, it goes on later around 618 to say, pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication that keep the alert and always persevere in the supplication for the saints. Prayer is a continual thing. So after we realize that we have possessions, we need to continually pray, continually pray. One time may not be enough. I can't go to the gym and work out one time and declare that I am in shape. Amen. <laughs> I cannot cook one meal and demand that everybody start calling me Chef Simpson. Amen. 
everything you want to excel at requires work, including our faith walk. There is, there is something that they've been writing about recently, and it's even made its way into uh, the United Methodist system in terms of pastoral development and training and making better pastors. And it's called the 10,000-hour rule. And, and basically what it is is the point of the rule is to say to be good at any given task, you need to practice at it for 10,000 hours. They say that once you have practiced something that long, whether it be music, athletics, public speaking, preaching, practicing medicine, practicing law, singing, advanced mathematics, whatever you choose as a profession, around 10,000 hours or give or take five years, eight hours a day doing that, your mind and body begin to groove together in accomplishing the task. Uh, I listened to sports talk radio and they were talking about the 10,000-hour rule um, on Friday. One of the sports hosts was talking about golf swings. And they said that the 10,000-hour the rule in the golf swing would allow you to be able to maintain a consistent swing no matter what kind of club you were using, no matter what kind of brand you were using, if you spent enough time practicing with it. And once you would hit that way that you were able to adapt to any kind of club or any kind of wedge or any kind of driver, that you have practiced it enough time where your mind and your body are in one in sync with it. That is where the professionals operate at. 10,000 hours is, is uh, when your mind and body begin to groove together at once, accomplishing a given task. Everything's not a blur then. Uh, stuff slows down. You're able to figure out things. There seem like you figured it out a lot faster. You're able to function well at that particular pass, task rather, and not get overwhelmed. When you do it, some argue, though, that, you know, uh, you can be genetically predisposed and you may not need 10,000 hours. It may take you 8,000 hours or in some cases five if you just have that ear for music or have that skill with math or have that ability to speak well. But the point is, whether it be 10,000 hours or 8,000 hours or 5,000 hours, the point that's being made is it takes practice. It takes time to get better at any given thing. You can't just roll out of bed, try something new, and then get mad that it's not working or you're not as good as you thought you were going to be. Amen. Success leaves clues, and success takes time. So we could all spend a little time, even if we have a good reputation for it, we can all spend a little more time praying. But not just praying. Studying the word, worshiping, fasting, giving, and every other thing that can be associated or classified as Christian behavior. And not just on Sunday. Because you're certainly not going to get to 10,000 hours that fast if you do it once a month or once a week. Or just at home at the TV. This is something that takes continual practice and not just done on Sunday. So we have to pray. And we have to pray continually. Last point is power. Let the church say power. Power. Goes on to say that God put everything under his feet. All of your problems, your sickness, your disease, everything. It may not be done the way that you want it to be done. But it will get taken care of in due time. 
If everything was done the way you wanted it to do, what would be the need for God? You don't tell God, hey, sit this one out. I got it. Don't worry. I'm, I'm finna take care of this. But no, everything is put under God's feet. And not just for this age, but the age to come. He has put all things under his feet. First Corinthians 15 says that for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. There's a place I've, I've worked from time to time in, in their media production department. And we never leave the building without saying, for I shall not die, but I shall live to declare the works of the Lord. For he must reign until every enemy is under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, but, and we will reign for him forevermore. Under his feet. I like that. There's a, a, a term that one uses is called uh, head and shoulders above the rest. And when one uses that term head and shoulders above the rest, it means that something is clearly superior to anything else you can put up against it. So-and-so's barbecue is head and shoulders above the rest. Their singing is head and shoulders above the rest. Some would even argue that there is not even any competition when something is head and shoulders above the rest. It is that much better that they really don't need to spend any much time showing up to compete. They've already lost. There's no competition when something is head and shoulders above the rest. And if there is no competition at that level, how much greater is our God if everything is not not only put head and shoulders below him, but under his feet. The ultimate victory is proclaimed. When Christ rose from the dead, everything was under his feet. Made Christ not only uh, everything under his feet, but made him the head of the church forever and ever. Just like when we sing the Gloria Patri, world without end, ah, man. Amen. Christ is in charge. And this thing is not going to end. The final victory has already been proclaimed. We just need to realize it. Take our possessions. Keep praying and realize the power. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come.